Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And on this episode, we're going to show you the way to SST-152, the Dinosaur Jr. self-titled EP, otherwise known as the Little Fury Things EP. We love Dinosaur Jr. on this show. Um, and, and Little Fury Things is the opening track from the You're Living All Over Me LP. So we've had it on the show before on SST-130 where we do uh, an intro, History to Dinosaur Jr. But on this episode, we do a, a deeper dive into this EP. And to help us out, Brent, we've got a special guest that was a key part of the Dinosaur Jr. package during this time frame. Yeah, we've got Mora Jasper on the show. Yeah, just awesome. We spoke about Mora on episode 130 also, but we get some great info right from her herself. And we're just thrilled about that. It's uh, it's very, very cool. And we, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think, have we had anyone on the show before who was like the artistic contributor to a band? Have we had anyone like that before? I don't think so. Not directly. We've talked to a few people, not, you know, we haven't interviewed them, but, you know, we've had, yeah. people, I've talked to some people like Ted Connect, for example, comes to mind, who did the Painted Willie and the Gone right. record. Yeah, we have uh, been in touch with some of the artists, but I think this is our first interview, so very cool to have Mora on. Yeah. Brant, before we get back into some Dinosaur Jr., why don't you hit me with some spiels? Okay. I have a feeling I'm going to scoop one of your spiels here, because you sent this to me. I watched the Teenage Head documentary, Picture My Face, the story of Teenage Head. Yeah. Directed by Douglas Aerosmith. Did you watch it? Oh, totally. I, yeah, we mentioned this on the pod a few weeks ago, but it's now out and you can watch it for free on TVO. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. What did you think? Oh, I thought it was great. It was really bittersweet during some points for sure, but really made me appreciate the band. And again, we've mentioned this before about Teenage Head, that I feel like they are not as renowned as they ought to be. And hopefully this will will add a bit more to that to get their name out a bit more. Such great music, man. That's yeah. that's the thing. I listened to them all day the day after I watched the documentary. So did I, but here's so okay, so here's my things about it. One, it's very Canadian. <laughs> of course. I, I was laughing at the Canadianness of it at, at, at on multiple occasions while I watched it. Um I just worry that if you don't know the band's history and you don't know their music as well as someone like say you or I do, that it doesn't necessarily paint the full picture. Yeah, no, it, it does not paint the full picture of the formation, that scene or anything like that. It's really focused on kind of the aftermath right. of the death of Frankie Venom. So it's, it's not a history of Teenage Head documentary. It is not. Right. I guess that's what I'm saying. And that's okay. I, I mean, I know the history fairly well, but I want other people who don't to, to see it and, you know, recognize, you know, Teenage Head for the amazing band that they were and are. Yeah. Well, to that point, what I would recommend, there's a book on Teenage Head. Gods of the Hammer. Gods of the Hammer. That's right. There you go. So check out that book, Gods of the Hammer and... There's obviously that classic film, The Last Pogo, yeah. and and that's a pretty short little film, 25, 30 minutes, but some years back, they put out an expanded edition of that with interviews, way more footage, 
it's I think it's a double disc at least. There's like three or four hours of footage from that era of the Eastern Canadian punk rock scene in, in which Teenage Head features prominently. Go check that out. Yeah. And and put that together with this recent Teenage Head documentary, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would also throw in probably even more than that Gods of the Hammer book, I would throw in that, oh, what's it called? The Toronto book. Perfect Youth? No. No, not Perfect Youth. Um, it's more focused on, say, the Demics and the Diodes. Brent, I think you're thinking of that book, Treat Me Like Dirt. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. That's an oral history and that's really good. If I don't know what, if it's available or what the status of it is, it's probably about 10 years old now or more, but it's awesome. Yep. You can get it. I'm pretty sure you can still by Liz Worth. Yeah. Edited by Gary Piggold. Of course, that is a great book. You're quite right. If you want to round out that documentary and know the full history of Teenage Head, you probably should check out some other sources. Um, even have not been the same, the Can Rock Renaissance book. That one covers yeah. Teenage Head as well. That's a really good Toronto one. Scene. Yeah. You betcha. Hey, uh, I actually had Teenage Head booked at the club that I book at. Um, and they presumably the show would have happened were it not for COVID. So. Oh, no way. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I can't wait to see live music. I just hate talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, the other documentary I saw, Ryan, that I can't recommend enough is by Marco Porcia, who directed, filmed, and edited it. It's the documentary Swans, Where Does a Body End? That's really good. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. It's on my to-do list. It's great. My only complaint is it's two hours and 40 minutes long. And yeah, it, that's it, a, it, that's could be, it could be shaved down. It's a little long for me, but I'm sure there are Swans fanatics that are thrilled that it you know it probably could have been twice as long so a minor complaint but overall i mean it's awesome it seems like almost everybody participated in it so yeah where did you pick that one up from i rented it online for streaming okay yeah. cool ryan i have the v section of my get this shit off my phone segment are you ready very ready <laughs> <laughs> oh god Okay, Vertigo, Nail Hole. Yes. I knew you'd appreciate that. Their third and final record from 1993, Amphetamine Reptile. Uh, great, riffy 90s noise rock from Minneapolis. Good stuff. You betcha. Ryan, The Vaughn Zippers, The Crime Is Now. Ah. 2003, great Calgary, Alberta garage rock which was a total Canadian hotspot for garage rock in the 90s. Uh, Al Von Zipper uh, was instrumental in kind of making the scene happen. He had another band called Curse of Horseflesh, a bunch of bands before that. Uh, he had a label, Rotoflex. This is their second full length on Estrus. Also a string of amazing singles that just... This one just kind of came out of nowhere. I remember at the time, like, not really expecting it. I think they had kind of, the band had maybe unofficially broken up and then they came back with this record in 2003 and it's awesome. The lyrics are kind of social commentary. Oh yeah. Uh, it's super catchy, well-crafted punk rock. It's really good. Ryan, Ventura, Ad Matres. Nice. Swiss post-punk. It's cool. I think that was maybe in your top 10 last year. 
For sure, man. Yeah. Yeah, they're I thought they were French, but they might be Swiss. Their other album, uh, Ultima Nikat, you got to check that one out too. Okay, maybe they are. Maybe it's just the labels Swiss. I might have got that mixed around. Yeah. They definitely speak French. Okay. But but a lot of Swiss people do. <laughs> All right, Violent Green. Eros. Do you know that band? I don't. Okay, so they're on this label, Up Records, that you're going to hear Mora mention in our interview here right away. Uh, So I decided to dive into that label's catalog a bit. This is the band Jennifer Ole formed after the band Some Velvet Sidewalk, uh, who I really only know from the hype documentary. It's it's cool mid-90s indie rock. It's good. Yeah. Some Velvet Sidewalk, all the records are good too. I love their stuff. Okay, well, you might want to check out Violent Green. I will. Von LMO, Future Language, 1981, released through his own label, Strazar. Uh, Frankie Cavello is the guy. He's kind of the leader. He put out three insane records under this name, Von LMO, kind of like a cross between suicide and chrome. He's also had quite the personal history. He spent some time in prison for robbery. This is a good record, though. Okay, another great Calgary band, actually, Ryan, Viet Cong, their self-titled record, 2015. They have since changed their name to Preoccupations and released at least two, I think, albums under that name. Uh, are you a fan, Ryan? You know what? I should be, but uh, it it just has not happened for me. And I even saw them live a couple of times, and it just didn't sink in. But but you're you're a fan, I take it? I am, yeah. Mm, no way. Yeah. It's post-punk. It seems like it would be something that's right up your alley, so you might want to might want to try it again. Try it again, okay? Vaz, V A Z. Yes. Dying to meet you. This is on a label co-owned by Omar Rodriguez Lopez called Gold Standard Laboratories. Two former members of Hammerhead. Yep. This band is not unlike their stuff. Noisy but rocking kind of. Yeah, the Vaz stuff is great. It's not easy to find, though, but it's great. Yeah. Ryan, I did Van Halen, too. Of course, I grew up worshipping Eddie Van Halen, and I always go back to those first six, and I'll even throw on 5150 from time to time. I know you're a fan of the Sammy era, but uh, for nostalgia reasons, I, I got to go back to the DLR era. Look, I like DLR, but I it's I can't help it. When I was a kid... I, I got like a box of tapes and those those tapes are the ones that sunk in. 5150, OU812. That's why like Rush Power Windows is a big record for me. Yeah. That's why ACDC Flick of the Switch, it was all on that box of tapes. And Fly on the Wall, was... actually. Flick of the Switch is awesome. Fly on the Wall so, sucks. Well, no, Flick of the Switch, <laughs> Fly on the Wall. Those were the two uh, in there as well. Um, but it was Van Hagar tapes too. Yeah, that's okay. I'm not criticizing it. Okay, Victim's Family, White Bread Blues, their third record from 1990. I like all of Ralph Spite's bands. This one's good, jazzy, funky, punk rock. Toured a lot with No Means No, which is probably how they came on my radar. Ryan, I want to challenge you to a game of six degrees of innovation with Victim's <laughs> Family. And I think I can help you through it if you need help. With Victim's Family? Yeah. Oh, okay. Do you need some help? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Ralph Spite played on a 7-inch single by a Canadian instrumental band from Victoria. 
or Vancouver? A Canadian instrumental band from Vancouver, a seven inch? Yep. They did a series of seven inch singles with vocalists. Oh, removal. It would be removal. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Okay. Who else played on one of those removal singles? Oh, well, Mike Watt is on there. That's probably the Ring a ding track. ding. Yeah. And then yeah. we go Mike Watt, Minute Flag. You see? <laughs> Do you have to go through Minute Flag to get to Greg Ginn? Well, sure. Okay, that's one way. Also, Ralph Spite played in this all-star group that just released a new record. Uh, what, Guantanamo? Yes. Who else played okay. in Guantanamo School of Medicine? <sighs> They've had a lot of people in that band. I'm talking. I... I'm talking lo the low end ranger here. The low end ranger. Yeah, the bass player. I'm drawing a blank. It's Andrew Weiss. It's Andrew. Oh, Weiss. Andrew. Okay. Who played in a band called Gone? Okay, and then guess who else was in Gone? Uh, Greg Ginn. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I'm no good at these things. All right, uh, Vinnie Moore, The Maze, one of his many great albums. Yeah, he's a shredder, uh, but he also composes songs. It's not just about like insanely fast licks. And Ryan, his debut record, Mind's Eye, has crazy backwards alphabet bassist Andy West on it. Remember? Oh, yeah. Remember? Right Remember? Okay, Vietnam. Not the Austin Psych Rock Vietnam, but the new wavy post-punk band from New Zealand. They had one 12-inch EP in 1985, but it's been reissued with some unreleased tracks. It's really good. Vita, the self-titled album from 1995 that's all over the SS tree. We've got Dezo on guitar and vocals, Tom Tricoli, guitar and vocals, George Hurley on drums, Billy Bowman on drums, who went on to play in The Farmers with Georgie, Kurt Kirkwood did the artwork, Rob Holtzman from Slovenly does backing vocals, and it's a really solid straight-ahead rock record, not unlike DC3. So... The timing is good because it's really getting me primed for the DC3 album, Vita, that we'll be getting to shortly. Yep. Voivod, The Outer Limits, underrated record from 1993. Their new live album should be out any week here. And uh, maybe by the time this episode comes out, it might be out. I can't wait for that. Violent Femmes, Hollowed Ground, their difficult second record. I've been on a Violent Femmes kick ever since we had... Brian Ritchie on the show. Yep. Virulence, If This Isn't a Dream, 85 to 89, 2010 on Southern Lord. It's a comp of their album of the same name, plus some extras. I've talked about this band and record before on the podcast. This is pre-Fu Manchu, and if you're into Rollins-era flag and blast, you need to hear this record ASAP. Virulence? Yep. Okay. Vain. V-A-I-N. Move on it. Their third record. No Respect is their most well-known, and it's it's really awesome, too. You would not like Vane, Ryan, but I do. <laughs> it's They're still going, too. It's awesome. Okay, and then really quickly, Ryan, I have a few recommends to clean up here. Okay. And I will say, Ryan, you're batting a 1,000 on recommends right now. Exhalance, at Atonement from this year. Yeah. Really good, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice and heavy. Yeah, yeah. That new Mets, Atlas Vending. Yeah. Noisy Punk from Toronto. They're fourth for Sub Pop and maybe their best. It's really good. Lots of folks are 
um, saying that it's a little too poppy, but what? uh, whatever, whatever, man, it's got some great hooks and I love it. It's not poppy at all. No, but that's, I mean, I think that's some cynical people are saying it's too pop. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Yep. Uh, probably my favorite thing you've recommended in a, in a good while is the grave goods. Oh. New face revealed. Told you, man. That's awesome. Perfect I told- recommend. I, I need more of that. Yeah. Well, you should check out that free will record that I recommended <laughs> as well when I was talking about wishing well. You got to check that out too, man. I did. Sun Return. It's awesome, hey? It is really good. Another wishing well connection. That's really good. Not as and good then, as not as good as Grave Goods, though. That record is better than Free Will. They are both great. Yeah. No, it's good. Okay, and then a couple of albums that you sent me in the mail and gifted me, Ryan. That Slim Slim Dunlap band oh, yeah. live at the Turf Club. Right. That's great. I have a few of his records, but I need to get more into into his solo stuff. Definite Stones feel, which is right up my alley. Yeah, well, that's basically it. If you've got his two albums and that live disc that came out after he passed, that's about it. Hmm, I thought there was more. Not that I... Well, geez, maybe there is, but I've... I've, Well, well, you would know. Yeah, no. I mean, he also played on some Curtis A records, I believe, but uh, he was mostly a sideman. I think he only has the two solo LPs. Man, oh man, now I'm doubting myself. Yeah. And then, Ryan, that dumb record, King Tubby Meets Max Wall Uptown. That's really good. More of a post-punk thing than I was maybe expecting. Yep. Uh, Reminds me of some of these bands that I've been digging the past few years, like Shame and uh, and Idols. Oh, yeah. It might just be because of the British accent, but it's really good. Hoyle singing is just insane on that. And that, like, again, you mentioned that you really like that recommend Dub Sex. That's the band that Dub Sex turned into, Dumb. All their records are great. Right, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, man, great job on the recommends. Woo! Street cred, finally. Yep, yep. That's it. Those are my spiels. What do you have? Okay, cool. I've got two. This one's on the SS tree. Just to note for folks who are interested in this, like you and I are and will be, uh, Jack Indino, he re-released a record of his. He's a legendary musician, producer, engineer, and self-appointed noisemonger. He was also a member of Skinyard who put out records on Cruise, he re-released his second solo LP from 1992, Endino's Earthworm. He's, it's now called Endino's Earthworm Unearthed. It's a total 2020 remix, remaster, restoration, as he calls it. He basically mm-hmm. says on his Bandcamp page that he wasn't a big fan of how how it sounded, how he made it sounded, and he wanted to uh, to fix it, basically, and he did. Um, in his in his view, anyways, I didn't really mind Endino's Earthworm original, and there's 30 minutes of extra music too. Wow. So and uh, and don't forget too, also on the SS tree because on that record, Barrett Martin was the drummer from Screaming Trees. Uh, I see. This is one of the the pandemic pro column things. Yeah. <laughs> People are doing all these cool, you know cleanup projects yeah right now yeah the the pandemic pro column is short but it exists fair enough yeah well if you're gonna be you know hunkering down at home at least we've got you know stuff to listen to that's true and don't we need it um all right my second spiel now brant it's not my top 10 it's also not my last 10 
All right. It's my next 10. <laughs> and, and, and it's about books. And you know, when we're talking about books, we call it literature. Literature. That's right. So okay, hold on. I got to get my pen out. These are for folks looking for stocking stuffers. Here are my next 10 books that I want to check out that I was, I just found out about actually a couple of them I have, um, okay. and they just recently arrived, but here, here is my next 10. They look cool and they must be checked out. I have to get my wife to listen to this. Yeah. I've got a bonus round at the end. That's just for you, but hang on. Okay. Here's my, here's my next 10 grim humor, 1983 to 1987 published by fourth dimension it's uh, just released. It's a best of the first 10 issues of the legendary UK fanzine with interviews uh, with Husker Du, The Fall, Sonic Youth, Big Black, The Damned, photos, write-ups, everything. 300 pages. Check that out. Okay. Ruby Ray, California Cool, photographs from 1976 to 1982. This is a, a photo book documenting the punk and industrial scene and culture in the late 70s and early 80s in San Francisco. Ruby mm. Ray worked for the legendary punk zine Search and Destroy and later the research books. So obviously there's a great uh, West Coast San Francisco pedigree there in the punk scene. Um, and of course, there'll be content, not just of, you know, Dead Kennedys, but also Devo, Throbbing Gristle, uh, 200 pages from Trap Art Books. That looks really cool. Uh, third book, The Akron Sound, the heyday of the Midwest's punk. This is going to cover stuff about Devo, the Bizarros, Rubber City Rebels. This looks cool. It's on History Publishing, 160 pages. Got to check that out. For sure, yep. Uh, number four, I'm Not Holding Your Coat, my yeah. bruises and all memoir of punk rock rebellion by Nancy Burreal. This is out on bazillion points. And uh, Nancy, so this this is a book from a, like, uh, a female perspective from the punk scene. Uh, Nancy books some of Philadelphia's earliest hardcore shows, including Minor Threat, SSD, and uh, it's touted as 192 heavily illustrated pages. That'll be really cool. Mm -hmm. Number five, Great Gig Memories from Punks and Friends. This is a collection of stories about really memorable gigs. There, It looks like there's well over 100 stories in there. And contributors are Chuck Dukowski, Roger Miller from Burma, Joey Keithley, uh, provides an account of the DOA and Black Flag 1980 LA gig. Um, there's also contributions from Brendan Canty. Um, that's on Hope Collective Publications. That looks cool. All right, next one. Punks DC. Photographs by Bert Kiroz. Now, this is the second second run of these books. It's just coming out now. I m totally missed the first run. Um, Bert, though, was in Youth Brigade the Untouchables, a ton of DC bands. So you're going to see some awesome black and white pics from that scene of Embrace, Rites of Spring, Soulside, Scream, Ignition. You can get this on uh, Radio Rahim Records, and there's even copies on Outer Battery Records as well. Hmm. Capitals of Punk, DC, Paris, 
and circulation in the urban. This focuses on the circulation of punk, politics, and culture, and specifically on the connection between Washington, D.C., that hardcore scene, and its less heralded counterpart in Paris. This book tells the story of how these two underground music scenes in two major world cities influenced one another in the last 50 years. Now, that looks interesting to me because when I used to buy uh, like Fugazi CDs and whatnot in the 90s, there always used to be like a little sticker on the back that would talk about like made in France or whatever. So there's some sort of connection there that I have no idea about. I'm interested in reading about that one for sure. Mm -hmm. Self and Punishment, a new book by Brian Walsby. 34 conversations with musicians about what they do and why they do it. And of course, Walsby's awesome artwork. There are contributions or, well, interviews with Bill and Milo from The Descendants, Lou from Dinosaur Jr., Bob Burt, Dale Buzzo from The Melvins, Steve McDonald from Red Cross, Keith Morris. Um, this looks really cool. It's on Pelicanesis Books, 276 pages. We are not here to entertain punk rock, Ronald Reagan, and the real culture war of the 1980s America. This is written by Kevin Matson and published on Oxford University Press. It looks quite academic in tone. This I actually have this one. I got this one in the mail. It has almost 100 pages of appendices and endnotes and sources in it. And you know what's in there. More stuff to check out. So it looks, <laughs> it looks, it looks really, really cool. Um, and then finally, my tenth one, I also got this one because this is going to be a fun read. Remain in Love by Chris France from Talking Heads. Um, mm, yeah. He writes about Talking Heads, the Tom Tom Club, and then of course his wife Tina. This is new. It looks cool. Those early Talking Heads, well, actually all the Talking Heads, but especially the early stuff, always get some heavy rotation here around the house. Uh, so those are my next ten. Bonus round for you, and this, make sure your wife hears this part, okay? Okay. Remember that documentary, Murder in the Front Row? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, so there is a uh, a book that came out to accompany the documentary that uh, you would dig. Um, there's a few shots online of all the pics and whatnot, and uh, dude, you would just drool over that. Yeah, book. I've, I've looked at it. It's on bazillion points, right? You betcha. Yeah, yeah, I've looked at it, yeah. Yeah, you need that one. Stocking stuffer for Brent. There you go. Those are my spiels. There's another one I need actually that I thought might be in your in there, Ryan. It's a new one on Hozak. It's written by a member of that band Tuxedo Moon. Oh, what's that one? I can't remember what it's called, but it it sounds really interesting. So I, I think they just announced it. All right. Well, that'll be part of my next eleven. Your next next ten. That's right. There you go. Right on, man. Are you? Uh... Ready to check out some little fury things? I sure am. History lesson, part one. All right, so as I mentioned, we covered most of these tracks already on SST 130, You're Living All Over Me. Go back and check that out. We really do a deep dive into the history of Dinosaur Jr. And also, uh, we, go, we run through all of the SST releases, because of course, like, these tracks are also on SST-275, the Fossils comp. So there's a lot of times we're going to get to see Dinosaur Jr., which is great. Let me tell you uh, what the Spaceman said about this EP, though, because it's a great way to kick it off, I think. 
So this is from the SST catalog around this time about this EP. Just when you thought you had recovered from the oral wallop of their debut LP, Dinosaur Jr. releases an EP of Megasonic Proportions, featuring a mental meltdown rendition of the Peter Frampton classic, Show Me the Way. Now, it mentions in this catalog that it came out on 12-inch and 3-inch CD. But this release in particular, Brent, I don't know if you checked this out, but SST got way merch on this EP, right? Oh, yeah. This is like this is like the start of colored vinyl, I think. Yeah. So that you can get this on 12-inch, 12-inch like uh, vinyl LP type thing, 3-inch mini CD, a cassette EP, which I think would you... Would you call that a cassingle? Sure. Call it a cassingle for me. Cassingle. Thank you. And it came out on 10-inch on no less than purple, magenta, blue, red, and yellow vinyl. Yeah. I think cassingles, Ryan, have to come in that little sleeve that you slide it in and out of, though. Oh, okay. They can't come in like a hard shell case. And this one did, for sure, because it has like for the sure. real J-card. And when you say mini CD, you're not talking about one of those small CDs. This actually came out on a regular size CD. And a three-inch CD. Did it? Yeah. 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 I didn't really expect a single debate. That was awesome. <laughs> so we, def we definitely go full merch for this EP with SST. But why do we have Mora Jasper on the show? Mora was there. She didn't do the artwork for this 12-inch, but she did for You're Living All Over Me, as we mentioned, the Repulsion 7-inch, the uh, self-titled LP on Homestead, the Bug LP on SST, the Freak Scene Wagon Just Like Heaven EPs. Uh, the Wagon EP is on Sub Pop, by the way. Um, you guys talk about this in the interview. But her artwork really, for me, helped define an era of Dinosaur Jr., this is like the early Dinosaur Jr. sound and look to me as a package, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. The Homestead SST years are, I think she did all the artwork for all of yeah. them. Yeah. Now, if you want to see a great collection of this work by Mora and more, check out that great Numero 7-inch single box set called Visitors, which Mora does the liner notes on. And there's a book of unused artwork from this period as well that really looks a lot like this era of dinosaur junior artwork that Mora did she calls in the in the liner notes that this uh, place where she's from worcester the self-proclaimed armpit of massachusetts um, <laughs> she left she went to amherst though of course to uh to attend university and she also uh, mentions when she started running into jay mascus she says um he was just about the messiest looking person I ever seen. Not dirty or smelly exactly, just a jumbled disaster of wrinkled everything. His short hair looked like a sticky tangled bird's nest, and he wore a belt with at least a foot of extra leather strap dangling from its buckle. The hyperactive cartoon rabbit on his t-shirt read, tricks are for kids, which was about as much as Jay ever said. When he did speak, it was with a long, slow, drawn-out drawl. <laughs> and then 
it it's a great description of this time period and some of some of it is uh you, you and Mora discuss in more depth in the interview right away here but the the comment that i really like from Mora's liner notes about her work with dinosaur junior is is really captured in this quote here everything i made for the band's records i made for jay even when i didn't care i cared the songs and images always felt so personal to me. Sometimes they still do. This music was the soundtrack that defined an important chapter in my life and ultimately my experience of growing up. And I got to tell you, like when I listen to these songs and we just listened to you're living all over me, you know what, a couple of months ago, but every time these tracks come on, it just feels like, the comfort zone in my body, right? Like it's, it's just, it's just perfection. Now talking about Mora as an artist, definitely an iconic artist too. Um, one thing I thought I would mention for folks and most people listening to the show are, are familiar with Mora's artwork, I suspect, but you should also check out there. There were a couple of dinosaur junior releases that came out later that, are inspired by Mora's artwork. There is um, the Bug Live at the 930 Club LP on Outer Battery Records. That artwork is done by Mark Spusta, and it's it's a take on the Bug artwork, but it just, like, you can tell how influential, iconic that image is, and the, the reimagining of it on that LP is just awesome. Even better for my money, though, is Spusta's work on the Dinosaur Junior LP, Chocomel Days, yeah. which came up, which came out on Merge, which again is inspired by the "You're Living All Over Me" LP. Just awesome artwork. Again, very much in, uh, well. It says on the jacket, totally inspired by Mora there. And again, when I was thinking about. Mora and how she really defined this period of Dinosaur Jr. Uh, it, it really struck me as well how, you know, the band and and certainly from Mora's perspective at this time, Jay was actually really concerned about the imagery that went along with the band. And there are kind of Dinosaur Jr. phases. We talk about Mora defining this early phase of Dinosaur Jr. There's also like the middle period the major label years of Dinosaur Jr. where those angry Johnny paintings really define Dinosaur Jr. And then I mentioned Mark Spusta. He really um, has defined this later era of Dinosaur Jr. after the reformation and Jay's solo albums and the singles. You know, they really have a cohesive look, feel, and sound. And the visual art has always been a big part of Dinosaur Jr. That's why it's so cool to have Mora on the show. Now, if anyone wants to learn more about Mora, you can check out her website. But I thought I would give a quick spiel from her website before we throw it over to the to the interview, Brent. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Mora does mention this somewhat, like at a very high level. But this is from her, her website, morajasper.com, where there's a ton of projects there that you should go check out. I, I truly had no idea. Like, I really didn't. So this is a great excuse to do a deep dive. But here is what it says about Mora on her website. Mora Jasper is a visual artist and filmmaker whose work explores the intersections of history, pop, culture, and mass media 
as influences that inform our individual and collective sense of self. Much of her work involves or is inspired by the lives of regular people. Works range from large-scale participatory projects to studies of people and places inspired by existing historical documents. Oftentimes, her work functions as a bridge between art and non-art experiences, inviting participation and bringing people back into the process of cultural production. By taking on the trappings of mass media forms not normally considered art, such as karaoke, aerobics instruction, or weather reports, these forms become vehicles for empowerment, ones that function as backdrops in which each individual story, dreams, and expectations can unfold. Her work has been exhibited and screened at venues such as Artist Space, Vox Populi, and the Institute for Contemporary Art in Boston. She's an artistic director of That One Film Festival and a co-founder of the experimental media collective Death Factory. She's probably best known for her work as the co-founder of Punk Rock Aerobics, the DIY Workout, and her album art for Dinosaur Jr. Born and raised in Worcester, Mass., she's currently an associate prof of intermedia art at Bell State University, Muncie, Indiana. So definitely really accomplished. Yeah. That punk rock aerobic stuff is really, really fun. There's like, uh, you know, local news stories that you can find, like on yeah. YouTube and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. It's interesting. Well, Maura will talk about it, but I think she was surprised at how well it took off too. Yeah. Yeah, I want to do punk rock aerobics, man. I, I do, but I don't want anyone to see it and I don't want any mirrors <laughs> around. <laughs> you want to kick it over to Maura? Let's do it. Okay, we're joined on the podcast today by Maura Jasper. Maura, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right, take me back, Maura, if you can. You grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, is that right? It's pronounced Worcester. Oh, so, okay. But yes, Worcester, Mass. Or Worcester, if you really want to say it with an accent. <laughs> right. Where's that in relation to Amherst? So uh, Worcester is basically in the middle of the state, and Amherst is about uh, an hour and a half west, maybe a little bit less. Um, I can't remember in miles, but it's it's slightly west of Worcester, Mass. And um, there's a big university there, so I ended up there to go to college. Were you seeing punk shows in either your hometown or Amherst prior to moving there? No, I had actually never been to Amherst prior to moving there, but um, but we, my sister and I and our friend uh, Judy, we, you know, we were just punk rock kids, and we had a radio show on the local NPR affiliate, WICN in Worcester, and, you know, we, we went to shows usually in Boston, oh, yeah. uh, shows in Boston and Worcester, but the radio show was really how we met a lot of people. Um, the radio show was pretty much um, how I how I I was made aware of what was happening in Western Mass. Mm -hmm. So, like kids would call in, and you know, like we would announce on the radio, "Hey, I'm going to school at UMass Amherst in the fall. Is there anyone out there who's punk rock who can tell me like who the cool kids are?" <laughs> <laughs> so, like that was how it would work back then. And you know, we did. I think there were some shows we had been to. I vaguely remember, but mostly, no, we didn't spend a lot of time there. Yeah. 
Uh, and you needed a car. We were young, right? So, like, at that time, I was probably 16 years old. Right. Was there a punk so, scene I mean, there? It wasn't, were there, were there like, local punk bands? It was a huge bands? punk scene. Yeah. Yeah, they had a really healthy, um, you know, it was like, it, so their scene was more, like, referred to as Western Mass Hardcore. Right. Or the Western Mass scene, right? So, like, there was the Boston scene, the Western Mass scene, and Worcester was somewhere in the middle. Um, so... But back then, if if there was a really cool show, you would drive to go see it, you know. So um, I think, you know, one of the first shows after I got out to school uh, as a freshman was Flipper. And I think actually that was, if, I'm trying to remember if that was the first time I saw Deep Wound, which was uh, Jay's first band. Right. But those shows, there was a place in Western Mass, a Grange Hall, that would do these all-ages shows. So that's where I remember going to for shows. But most of the time, like in high school, we would go to things in at the Channel, these all-ages shows at the Channel Club in Boston on Sunday afternoons. Okay. Yeah, that's where we met Jay. Like, because I, I had, I had um, there was a band in Western Mass called All White Jury. Right. And uh, there was a kid there. Um, there were a couple of kids uh, who played in that band and they called into the radio show and, um, I want to say it was Scott and Simon. Um, but they called into the radio show and said, Hey, you know, I go to school out there and there's some kids that you got to meet and there's some bands and you got to meet this kid, Jay, and he'll be going there the same time that you're going there. Um, and I think he's going to be at, I want to say it was the Misfits show at the channel, uh, just like a month before school started. So I remember meeting him and a few other kids at that show okay. in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> Doing what kids did back then, just yeah. like hanging out in the parking lot. <laughs> right. What was your radio show called? You know, I can't remember the name of that show. And I, I'm, I can't remember. I actually can't remember. And I think that the there was Positive Noise might have been the name of Mark Lynch's show or it could have been the name of all of the shows. But we basically got, we were able to do radio because we had, our friend Judy had an older sister who was doing a radio show and she got us involved that way. And you know, at that time, we were probably 15 and 16 years old. So we're really young. Right. And, you know, you put three young girls on the radio. Literally, we were, our show was, I want to say, three in the morning to six in the morning on Friday, um, for, like going into Saturday morning. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we got some really weird calls. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking. Um, we had no prior radio experience. We thought we were really good DJs. Um, we thought that our show was popular because we were such good DJs. But looking back, I'm like, no, the show was pretty popular because we were three teenage girls like on the radio at 4 o'clock in the morning just talking shit about everything. <laughs> right. Okay, so you're in Amherst. You said Deep Wound was still active by the time you moved there. Yeah. So, um, we had heard that 
I just remember it was this kid Scott who played an all white jury, and he, you know, he said, you know, you've got to get to know Jay, you've got to see Deep Wound. Um, that's like that's one band. I remember seeing them at the Grange Hall. I want to say it was uh, with Flipper, um, and it was Lou and Charlie Naka, Charlie Nakajima, Lou Barlow, and Scott Helen with Jay on drums. Okay. <laughs> Legend has it Jay would play his guitar like stage volume in his dorm room. <laughs> Did you witness any of that? Yes, all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, when I met Jay, he was starting to, he was learning how to play guitar. Mm -hmm. And he was a drummer. Um, yeah, I mean, I would go down, to, you could hear it. I had, I lived in the same dorm building so um i remember when i met jay at the punk show like maybe three or four weeks later we're at school and i see him in the hallway and we realize that we live in the same dormitory and i lived on the fourth floor he lived in like what was like the first floor or the basement floor and you could hear his guitar on the fourth floor <laughs> like you could you could hear it um, yeah, I mean, he would be down there playing in between class. Right. It was really loud, but it wasn't as loud as his, <laughs> he had a dorm room that was strategically placed, like where, where there was a dumpster right outside the bedroom window Okay. and like they would come and empty the dumpster. And the only thing louder than his guitar was when they would slam that dumpster down on the ground. <laughs> and it was just like the funniest thing because you'd be in there and you'd think nothing could be louder, and then you'd, like the whole room would shake with this stupid dumpster. But yeah, he he would play really loud. It drove kids crazy. Um, I mean, he literally drove people crazy. Were you around at all? Like, do you recall kind of the formation of Dinosaur? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, you know, I think there are a lot of people who could give you more detailed information probably about some of that. But when Deep Wound stopped playing and dinosaurs started up, it was almost like there was a gap in time. And, you know, my recollection of it was that I just remember Jay talking an awful lot about, you know, there was a lot of conversation about like what he was listening to and what he was interested in that time. And there were a lot of things changing in music and, um, you know, he really liked Neil Young and there were a lot of like, you know, you could see him being really responsive to changing how he was thinking about how he wanted to play music. I remember the infamous Mogo show on the lawn of, um, you know, Mogo was kind of in between, uh, Dinosaur Jr. and Deep Wound and, you know, there was this kind of interim, almost like this transitional time um, but like my recollection of it was just like the music that people were listening to was changing and expanding a lot. And there was, you know, I remember, you know, it almost as if the meat puppets was this constant thing in the background. And, you know, there were a lot of things people were listening to in general that were kind of moving away from like hardcore right. and, or new wave. Yeah, I mean, I just remember it was very awkward, this transition, because <laughs> Mojo sort of imploded rapidly. Um, 
people were friends and everybody was really young and you've got like a group of like young people who are acting like young people and, you know, kind of doing kind of crazy, stupid things and also wanting to have fun. And also some, some of these kids were like in college. Lou was in high school. I remember Jay being very decisive after Mogo about what he wanted to do yeah, and taking time to just reform things. What exactly was Mogo? That was, is that how Murph came in to the, to the band? I'm just, you know, um, I can't remember exactly. I can't remember if Murph was playing in Mogo, to be honest. I, it seems it's almost like a blip. <laughs> like I remember, I remember probably this event taking place in the lawn of Amherst center in the park. And, you know, Charlie was uh, like a high school friend and he was a very good, all, you know, they were all good friends. So, and, you know, Charlie just, Charlie, Charlie at that time was a super witty guy and he wasn't afraid <laughs> to just branch out on his own. And he did. And I, I just think that, um, you know, what happened that day, you know, Jay did not like what happened. I can't remember all of the details of it, but, um, you know, it was tense. And um, I think that there was a moment maybe where the idea was that that would be the next band for him, okay. but then it wasn't. So after right. that event, and okay. it was one gig, just one gig. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so fast forward to the first Dinosaur Junior record, or I guess Dinosaur still at this point, on Homestead. How did it come to be that you did the artwork, the cover art for that? I'm assuming Jay just asked you to do it? It was that simple, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I was an art student. I was in art school. I was really close to Jay. We were friends, and, like, um, I was asked (laughs) to do the artwork and... I don't think anyone really thought too much about any aspect of any of it other than like uh, back then everyone did their own artwork. Everyone did their own everything. Uh, It was part of the culture. And you like, you know, one day Jay just says to me, you want to do the cover? And I think I had done like flyers and stuff for shows. Um, I know I did flyers because I did them all the time, but just, the artwork for that was just funny. I think, you know, looking back, it was probably a year after I'd probably known Jay a year in that year, all these transformations had happened with, for him, with his music, uh, just meaning like transitioning out of deep wound and into dinosaur and dinosaur feeling like this, you know, much more formed experiment. And <laughs> it's funny looking back on it. I'm like, Oh yeah. I remember like thinking I wanted to be left alone to come up with some ideas. And so I moved into a closet that was in like a janitor's closet that was in the dormitory. (laughs) And I went in there and Jay had all these ideas. So like he'd, he'd stop by the janitor's closet where I would work and he'd be like, can you do this? Can you change that? can we, what about if we did this? Like he's, so he was really involved in like how he wanted things to be. And sometimes we would like argue a little bit, but for the most part, like, you know, it was all fun. 
and he really wanted this image of this guy in the field. And then one day he says, like, so we were friends with this guy, Artie, who also, um, no, Artie didn't live in our dorm, but he was best friends with um, one of the guys that lived in the dorm. And Artie would come around, and he was this really kind of smart, oddball guy, super nerdy, not punk rock, but punk rock in spirit. And, like, you know, Jay loved Artie. And Artie would have Jay in stitches. And Jay just, he's like, can you just put Artie in there somewhere? Like, make him into the sun. So we get this image of Artie's face, and we cut, like, you know, and so, like, now I have Artie and Jay showing up, you know, every single day, more than once a day, it'd be like a knock on the door, and it would be Jay and Artie standing there. We just want to see progress. So come in, let's take a look. And, like, it was just weird, but whatever. We were all kids. <laughs> right. So, yeah, and Artie's the son, and, it, like, yeah, Artie actually, I, uh, so Artie's the face that you see in the sun, so for all those people who have tattoos of that son, and I know they're out there because I've been <laughs> sent the pictures. Um, that's Arthur Hurwitz, and he actually passed away of COVID this spring oh, in wow. New York, which was really upsetting for everyone. But um, No kidding. Yeah. So the oh. Artie, the man in the sun. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your friend. So when that record came out, did it capture for you? Like, I'm sure you had seen Dinosaur live many times by that point already. Did you, what What was the reaction to the album from, you know, the local fans? I, th- I mean, I, I think you'd have to ask more people, you know, my, I was really close to, to, we were, like, again, we're all friends. So right. I think for locally, I think most of us were pretty excited about that album. It was raw and fun and like kind of smacked you in the face but it was really different from anything else and I think um you know Jay another thing too I mean Gerard Cosway he also was a student at UMass who showed up that same semester so like you've got all these kids that land on campus I think it was the fall of 1983 and like you know um, Jay and Gerard struck up a friendship and Gerard really championed that record. And yeah. um, I think there was a lot of support for it, but you know, you have to remember it was a really small little insular scene. Yeah. And so like, yeah, people were really enthusiastic for something that was different. And there was a lot of, you know, energy in that. And, you know, I think also, you've got these um, different personalities kind of colliding and, you know, here's Lou living at home with his parents. And, you know, I think he was working at a grocery store. He was a bad boy at a grocery store. And, um, you know, and he's still got all the angst of like, you know, living with your parents. Meanwhile, Jay's in college and driving into New York city to see Gerard, who at some point drops out of school and moves to New York. And, um, but I think there was a lot of anticipation, a lot of excitement. I think that I feel like Gerard really was important in making that happen too. For sure. For the second record, if I understand 
the sequence of events right, they gave you the recordings for You're Living All Over Me to listen to while you created the cover art. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, after the first record, um, after that first album cover, the first album cover really, honestly, it feels like a funny collaboration. Um, but after that one, it, it was almost like Jake just kind of left me alone and like, can you do this? Can you do that? And, and I, I really started doing things that I more or less wanted to do. Right. Like, um, I didn't have, I would just do a bunch of drawings, give them to Jay. I might have an idea. I might make the whole thing on one piece of paper. And, um, and I, I think for me, I was always trying to make something in re- that was responsive to the music that um, was responsive to the music, but also a little bit things that I was also looking at at the time, um, which like back then and like, oh, I used to love the album covers um, from the fall. And like, you know, there were certain bands that I would look at. But there were also artists that I would look at and so you see all those things in there. And again, like, you know, when I look at them, to me, I see, you know, I just, I see almost like a, a very young person just trying to make something express themselves, through, you know, visually. But I could not believe how amazing that second record was. I really couldn't believe it. Like, I just remember listening to it over and over again. And I had a studio at that time and I would just draw and just did a lot of drawings and did things in response. Although one funny thing about that record, um, that album cover is that if you hold it up next to confusion is sex, uh, the sonic use record, you will see that they look really similar. Right. And I don't know if you've done it, but I always think it's really funny. So, I'm always surprised that like more people don't say something about that because I actually think that like I was a huge Sonic Youth fan at that time and like kept listening to all those things and there's no doubt in my mind that I I had no idea that you know that they looked that similar right until like one day I notice it years later um, when it's really blatantly obvious but I. I realized too, I'm like, Oh my God, I must've been like somehow subconsciously thinking about that too. And like, (laughs) you know, not having no concept of like, you know, no awareness of it. Um, the same way that you, you know, you're pulling from all the things around you, but you don't totally realize it. But I've always thought it was really funny because yeah, I mean, I remember the day I pulled them up and I was like, Holy shit. Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, but no, the, all the artwork around then was made in response to that record, to, to, to the music at that time. But that record in particular was really powerful. I mean, I'm sure it's not the first time something has seeped into your own work without you realizing it at the time. I mean, you, you'll hear a lot of musicians, for example, who just don't listen to music ever because they don't, they, they don't want the outside influence creeping in. Yeah, I mean, I... I think it's all good because I feel like that's how things advance and grow, right? Sure. That you, you're taking in culture all the time. So you're, you're, you're responding to all the culture around you and you're responding to the things around you and the people around you. And, you know, um, it, it is that responsiveness that, that you're, um, 
your processing when you make things. And I, I think this is why, um, you know, you do hear, you hear it in music all the time. You hear something and you'll say to yourself, well, this sounds like something. What is it? And then you'll realize it sounds like part of another song by somebody else. Right. And there it is. And it's being like recirculated in this other way. But, you know, and sometimes it, it's really so, it's like, I mean, there's zillions of examples of it, but, but yeah, there's one where I caught it in my own work and it's like, ooh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, anyhow, that record, the artwork was definitely, um, it was not randomly generated, like, Right. You know, it wasn't a situation where Jay came into the studio and just looked at things and picked something off the wall. Um, everything that I made for them at that time was made directly in response to music, and it was made for Jay. Right. For the bug artwork, what's the medium you used there? It looks amazing. It's totally iconic cover art. Um, I don't remember exactly other than I remember using lots of glue and like acrylic clear acrylic stuff that I was just like glopping pigment into and you know I I remember actually having some kind of idea for what I wanted and you know I remember Jay tell I remember saying to Jay it's really important that it's printed gold it's really important that you print this gold he's like yeah well I don't know that we can print it gold like you mean like metallic so you want it to have this sheen and he sits down, he tries to explain to me like what the four color thing is going to be like when they print it. And he's like, it might look like mud. <laughs> and like, so I, you know, I didn't have experience with graphic design. It wasn't really my thing. And I didn't really fully understand some of those things at that time. But, you know, I, I've seen, I've seen some bad print jobs of it. I've seen some good ones, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there was a point where, you, you know, you start getting some sense of like, okay, here's what I, here's what I think is important as an artist and what I want to do. And here's what I think is, seems, feels like it's connected back to this music. But, you know, it's funny because Bug's not my favorite one. <laughs> there's, there's, I look back and I'm like, yeah, I have favorites and I have like some that I, where I feel like, oh yeah, I, I miss I miss that artwork or I miss that, hmm. that little window of time. Do you have any of the original artwork still? Jay has some of it. Uh, I have the, I think one of my favorites is the cover from Freak Scene. Yeah. And I have some of that. Um, I'm looking at one right now because I have that in my house. Um, I have the back cover to the wagon, I think. I forget which one's Jay. Ha Jay has the first album cover. Okay. He's got that at his house. Um, You're Living All Over Me, I think, I forget who it was, but somebody told me that there was someone at SST who had that and that <laughs> they didn't give it back. And mm -hmm. then I think we, there was some conversation. Is that the property of SST? Like, it was so unclear. I don't know what happened to that one. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember who was the person that I had a friend many years ago, this guy, Chris Tacchino, he's really close to my sister. Chris Tacchino started up records in Seattle with Rich Jensen. Okay. 
who was also working at Sub Pop at that time. And um, Chris had worked as the, like the, he would, he was the receptionist, I think, at SST back then. And so Chris was the one who, who I think was telling me, you know, hey, I know where that album art is. But um, yeah, there were a lot of things I think that might have disappeared with whatever happened with SST. Right. Ironically, the episode that we're going to drop this interview into is the Little Fury Things EP, the one piece of artwork, I think, that you didn't do for the band during this time. It was done by Mike Maskus. Who's that? That is Jay's brother. And yeah, there, it was, I think, a, um, a childhood image that, like, an image that he drew when he was a kid. Ah, okay. Out of all this artwork you did, just like Kevin, Freak Scene, The Wagon you mentioned, a few other artists, but then you, it seems like you kind of dropped out of album art. Yeah. Is there so, a specific reason for that? Yeah, there was. Um, I mean, I, at some point, I remember a little bit losing, some, you know, I lost some interest in it. And some of it was just, I think, I was developing as an artist and changing the things that I wanted to do. I remember doing, when I did Just Like Heaven, I really enjoyed doing that because I was able to actually do something that, like to conceptualize the whole, every element of what that was and be able to etch onto one side of the record. And and I had a lot of, contr- a lot of control with what, how I wanted that to be visually. Um, you know, Jay had a lot of ideas that, of things he really wanted there were times that I didn't always want to be doing it. There were times where I remember sitting down and talking to him about other artists who could do things that, that there were artists that I liked where it was like, okay, you should look at this person's work or maybe this artist would be good. You know, and Jay and I had some falling out at some point over, I think it was the wagon. Yeah, it was the wagon. It was the one on sub pop with um, the doll on the front. Right. And he hated that. Like he hated it um he he wanted something else he thought the doll looked evil and (laughs) and at that point i remember thinking you know the thing is with jay if he doesn't like something he's going to turn around and do it himself and that's exactly what he did right so he he turned around and he provided his own doll and did a new version of that cover oh okay and i (laughs) And that was the point where I remember thinking, I love Jay, he's my friend, and he's, he's got very strong opinions about how he wants things done, and I also have very strong opinions about how I want things done, and we can only work together if we're working together. It's like it, and I, I also just thought to myself, I don't know that I want to be doing album art because I'm interested in these other things as an artist, and I was becoming much more interested in video and much more interested in, in time-based media and mixed media and these things that weren't translating so well as two-dimensional artwork. I was more interested maybe in ideas than in like illustration. And I think, you know, it, you enter into something as a 17-year-old, but at some point, you know, I was 22 and I just wanted to do other things and I wasn't that same person anymore. So... I wanted to evolve as an artist, and at that time, it just didn't seem like the right fit. And I, 
I really like doing the video, the Just Like Heaven video, because that gave me a chance to try something different and wacky and completely messy. And it didn't matter if it was good or bad. It just, to me, it was just about doing this other thing. And that's pretty much after that, I knew that, that maybe album covers weren't going to be something that I wanted to keep doing for JF, really for anybody. Sometimes I would do them if I really liked the band and I had something maybe I felt like doing or, um, you know, sometimes I did do them, but it took a long time. I think at some point I really didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. So you mentioned the Just Like Heaven video, which you directed and edited. It definitely comes across as like an art project, I would say, more than that's a rock video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. That's what, but I mean, that's, that's what I like. And I, and I think that actually that was the thing that, um, yeah, I really wanted to try things that maybe were, um, more, I wanted to get more creative with things in ways that maybe weren't going to fit that mold so well. And I knew that what I wanted to do probably wasn't going to match up so much to like the needs of maybe, um, more commercial media. And I, 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 that's the first video I ever made. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that the mistakes would be funny. And I knew that there was a certain kind of, it was really fun. And it's fun when you don't really know how to do something. And there wasn't a lot of pressure to make anything that was really great. So like, for me, it was super liberating and, you know, and again, like Jay had a lot of ideas for things he wanted to do with it, but mostly I was just learning how to use those tools. And um, I had the idea to use the Muppets and turn them into punk rockers. And we built this bedroom that was like a replica of a loose replica of Jay's childhood bedroom. Right. And like we took all the, the zines and shrunk them down and, um, yeah, it was a blast, right? Like you're making a miniature bedroom, <laughs> someone you know. And, you know, and then we get this phone call. I guess it was MTV got a phone call from Sesame Street, like a cease and desist. Oh, no. <laughs> there was no permission. Um, I got a phone call from someone saying you're not supposed to do this. But um, look, to me... I certainly wasn't going to ask for permission. You know, there was no budget. Right. And I think, what did I get for doing that? Pizza. <laughs> I think I always got paid in pizza. So like, and I think actually some of those early videos, um, not just, I mean, that one's a crazy one. Um, but there's others. I think uh, Jens Jurgensen and Jim Spring made one. They made more than one, I think. And those guys made some, they were really interested in experimental film and they made some really good videos for the band. You know, I, like I was much more interested in the videos that were experimental or a little more risk taking, a little bit weird. You know, at some point Jay started getting, you know, obviously a budget to do, um, you know, to do these more kind of formal um, standardized rock videos. Yeah. Which for me are a little less interesting, probably really fun for the band to do, but you know, they look like everything you see or used to see on MTV. So 
Yeah. I always like the low budget, raw, <laughs> weird stuff. Do you know if Just Like Heaven got played on MTV? Yes, it did. I can't remember how long it lasted, but it did. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember thinking it was so funny that like, because back then it was sort of open territory. You know, it was like people could still get really weird stuff played. Yeah. You mentioned the Little Fury Things video. Did you know the directors of that? Like, were they friends or were they outside? Oh, guys? so that video, I think that video is Jim Spring and Jens Jurgensen. Yeah. And they, those are uh, friends that Jay and Lou, that uh, Murph, all those guys knew them uh, from Hampshire College, which was an, like, you know, Amherst has, I think it's five colleges there. So um, Hampshire was also like, you know, much more radical school, obviously, than UMass, like, which was a state school. And Hampshire had a lot of really, they had a lot of super artsy kids there and like kids that, you know, wanted to pursue more unconventional paths. And so there was a lot of creativity coming out of Hampshire and there were a lot of shows and there was, you know, there were a lot of parties there. Um there are a lot of really cool kids hanging out there. Um, but I think that's how they met them. And then, like, so Jim made a lot of films. Jens is also a musician. They made that video. Right. And it's your sister Megan in the video, not you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll clear no, that up. No, not me. <laughs> no, Megan, Megan loved going, jumping in front of the camera. <laughs> I like being behind the camera. Megan right. liked being in front of the camera. But yeah, that's Megan. That's Megan dancing around in that video. She's dancing around in Just Like Heaven. <laughs> I think any opportunity to, to, to dance in a video, Megan would say yes. Yeah. What did you do next after you kind of stopped working with the band? Like, what was your, were you working as an artist? So I moved to New York City and I got a studio there like a lot of people and, you know, and I... I've always made work. I've continued to make work. Um, but my work really, really changed. And I moved again towards working with time-based media, mixed media, performance, things like that. I was definitely placing my, my work and my energy more in, in the world of, of art and not so much in the world of music. Um, even though my friends kind of, function in both worlds and always have, but I stayed in New York until around, I want to say 2000, and I went to Boston for what I thought would be a short break, but um, I ended up doing another project there um, with Hilton Mancini called Punk Rock Aerobics, and that was like, I at the time, I, I thought, well, I'm just going to do this punk rock aerobics project for a little while while I'm here in Boston and trying to figure out, like, you know, what I really wanted to do. And I was thinking about going to grad school. And and then punk rock aerobics kind of took on a life of its own for a little while. And um, <laughs> I just remember at one point thinking, for me, punk rock aerobics was an art project. It was, you know, this way of empowering people and thinking about, you know, how can you take the ideas of punk rock and kind of flip them in this other way that is uh, activates groups and changes the way people think about something. 
and it was super fun and I loved it. But, you know, you can only do something for so long before you do get bored. And I really wanted to do other things. I think we, I cannot believe how long I ended up doing that project, but, <laughs> but yeah, so I did that. And then at that point, that's when I said, okay, I'm going to grad school. <laughs> like, and I just stopped everything and went to grad school because I wanted to learn how to use new technology with art. I felt like I wasn't able to do a lot of things that things had changed. You know, when I met Jay, I was a painting major. And I had started working in all this other media, but I was learning it in a learning as you go. When I learned video, it was all analog. But when everything went digital, I didn't have access to those tools. And so I, when I went to grad school, it gave me this opportunity to learn all this new stuff and just focus on being an artist 100%. I could, you know kind of point myself in a new direction with what I wanted to do. Grad school is like really incredible for people. I think like for me, I was in grad school at age 40. So like to have that experience then and just focus solely on being an artist, it just felt like such a gift and you know, it was a little crazy, but (laughs) I made, I just started making new work and I, I made a lot of video work, you know, more conceptual work, working with people. At that time I was working with people and animation and things like that. I've moved towards more filmmaking lately, but I, as I got out of grad school and got hired at Ball State University and I am a tenured professor at Ball State now. Right on. And you still work with Dinosaur Junior creatively from time to time. Yeah, I do. Um, it's funny because <laughs> when they did the um, the first album, the anniversary of that release, um, I want to say it was 2016, um, they did a residency at the Bowery Ballroom. And prior to that, there was someone who got in touch with me about um, doing some, like, do you want to do some posters or some things like that to celebrate that album and I remember thinking about it and thinking you know I think I don't want to do any two-dimensional artwork like I and I wrote back like you know what I really want to do is I want to animate that cover (laughs) and and I could see it in my head and I just thought I really want to make that cover be what I want it to be like I want to take it from being this awkward collaboration that you do when you're 18 years old into something that I actually feel really proud of (laughs) and really feel like it can like take in all the things that this band has grown into and what can we do with it now? And so that felt like an amazing opportunity. Um, Yeah. We created this animation that would play while they were playing. They would play the album live, you know, every night they do the first set. Right. And then the second set, they would invite people in to play songs like these guest musicians yeah, there's like a 45-minute animation of that cover that I performed live while they were playing. So we had all these different animated elements in there that I would switch, switch out or speed up or add these different things to it. So it's a, like an animation, but it's performed live. You're editing and cutting live 
like it's almost like you're using like VJ equipment to do it kind of thing. Um, I use something called Isadora, but yeah, it was really fun. And you have to do it live because some, at some point somebody said, why don't you just like hit play with a quick time? But you can't do that because every single night, the set, the time of the set, like it, the way they played was different every night. And so there were nights where it was longer and longer and longer. And like, yeah, it just doesn't work. Bands don't play like that. Machines do. And how much fun is just pressing play on a <laughs> on a quick time? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. No. And it was it was such a fun experience. And then you know, in a year later, I got to do a whole bunch of shows with them in Europe, and we did some more like that um, in the United States that fall. Last year, I couldn't do anything. I was too busy with other things, but. It's funny because I was hoping I would be able to do some of it um, this year, but everything is stopped. Yeah. So. And you still see the band socially from time to time as well. I just saw Jay a month ago. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, no, we're all still friends. And um, I know Jay's whole family and my sister also knows the whole family and my family knows their family and it's pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, my husband played in a band with Lou. He played in deluxe folk um, implosion. Okay. Um, it's pretty, I mean, yeah, we still know them when they were playing a few years ago, they came through on the bus uh, when they were playing in Indiana. I'm trying Oh no, they were playing Bloomington. <laughs> they stopped here where I live in Indiana and the tour bus is like parked at the university where I work and we have everyone over here doing laundry and like, <laughs> you know, we're cooking and it was just really funny because, you know, we have Jay and Lou here and, um, and it was like this just funny thing. It was like, Oh, this feels so funny. It's like, you know, <laughs> my husband's in one change. room. <laughs> yeah. He's in one room playing records with Lou and I'm standing in the kitchen talking to Jay and it's like, it, Yeah. Yeah. But I would tell you that I think um, that's something with with that whole, a lot of that scene and those people, it's like, um, you'll find that there's friendships that just go back years and years, and Jay's maintained a lot of friendships for a long time, and, you know, he's like a really a pretty loyal friend to a lot of people. Yeah. Maura, where can people go if they want to check out more of your artwork? I have a website, so just marajasper.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. I, I wish you luck with it. I love your project. I oh, think thank it's you. awesome. Thanks for saying that. So, yeah, thank you. All right, awesome. So cool to have Maura on. Like I said, really pulls the whole era of Dinosaur Jr. together. Kind of makes you feel like you're walking around the dorm room with her and Jay, uh, <laughs> during the interview too. Hey, I'm like, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, I totally love that, uh, about the discussion. It, it just, um, I mean, I didn't live in a dorm, but I, I could, I could totally just see myself going, you know, what the hell is going on in that room there? Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and as soon as I see the guy going, Oh man, I bet you I'm not cool enough to be friends with him or her for that matter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh Yeah. Yeah, she was a total punk rocker, man. There's pictures of her from from that era, for sure. 
Do you want to talk about this record a little bit? Yeah, man. History lesson, part two. What do you want to do first? Do you want to go through all three tracks first? I didn't really write too much on the tracks uh, other than I'm, I'm guessing I would have talked about this when we did You're Living All Over Me, but the standout for me was that guitar solo on In a Jar. Oh, and the standout for me is Lou's playing on In a Jar. Yeah, that that, that is just quintessential classic Lou for me. The lyrics are awesome too in In a Jar. Yeah. Yeah, we, we definitely talked about about you know how little fury things it just kicks kicks off the record and the mixing the track like the multi-layered tracks and all the craziness on there lose fuzzed out bass like we definitely covered uh those two tracks what about show me the way though like this is a rare instance and almost without exception for dinosaur jr i was trying to think i mean i think i mostly always dislike cover songs like this like peace frog or time has come today by worm but i love this cover and i love all dinosaur jr covers yeah yeah it's a it's good it's a good cover for them it's of course peter frampton one of his biggest hits from his 1975 fourth studio record frampton but i think it was made more popular on the frampton comes alive yep live record for sure did you dig up Ryan at all when that was recorded? Like which session? Because if I'm remembering right, there's two recording sessions for your living all over me. You're right. Uh, a side and B side on the LP. I didn't re remind myself of that. I probably should go back and listen to episode 130 again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it says on the on this EP. No, it doesn't. I mean, it, it's probably from one of those two sessions. I'm guessing. Hey, I want to give you a Fury Things spiel, though. Can I do that? Yeah. So check this out. There's a band called Fury Things. Ever heard of them? I don't think so. So they're a trio from Minneapolis. And the reason I know them is I saw them open up for Bob Mould once. And Fury Things definitely named after this song. I was, I didn't. I was saving it for this episode to give a spiel about Fury Things because people should check out that band. It was a triple bill. Fury Things, this band from Montreal, Canada called Solids, which I really like. And Fury Things and Solids opened up for Bob Mould. It was a great, great gig. Um, I really dug Fury Things. I've I've picked up um, their records, but they've also got an EP brand called Saskatchewan. Really? Yeah. So you should check out the Fury Things Saskatchewan EP and that EP has them doing a cover of New Day Rising, which is really good. Oh, wow. And I I just remember at that gig being up front um, for the Bob Mould show and Kyle from the Fury Things were there and we were both just losing our shit watching Bob Mould. That's just a great way to hear a band for the first time and then to hang out and uh, get blown away by a band that you're both big fans of too. It was awesome to fanboy out with a band that you just got intro to. Yeah, that is cool. We should talk about the artwork, Ryan. Yeah, man. You guys talked about it in the interview as well. Mike Maskus did this cover. Yeah, I guess I misspoke earlier when I said Maura did all of it. This <laughs> this is be the one thing she didn't do. Yep. Yeah. 
I did, what I didn't know is it was done, I think she says, when he was a child. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to say, I guess, because if I tried to paint a painting, I'm in my 40s, it would be about this good myself. <laughs> so you, 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 you never know. But it definitely is like, uh, it's weird, though, because it's got, I don't know if you noticed, but it has a castle in front. It looks like an ogre with almost like a, a damsel in distress or something like that. I don't know, with, in like a mini skirt. And then way in the back, like a Sopwith camel airplane. So it definitely uh, bridges a few different centuries there, perhaps. And it also looks like, I don't, I, I suspect, like kind of in the distance behind the castle, I suspect they're birds, but they almost look like flying fish. I don't know. I thought they were bats. Oh, maybe bats. Yeah. Could be, could be. Yeah. But also totally fits the Dinosaur Jr. aesthetic, right? Well, there's purple, which is Jay's favorite color. And we've got the Dinosaur Jr. logo here. This only came out with the name Dinosaur Jr., I think, right? As far as I could tell, yeah. This would have came out after the the Jr. hit the stage and that other lamer band, Dinosaur, started making a stink. Great point you made that it's actually, I guess, a self-titled record. Yeah, you hear it referenced interchangeably, though, right? Yeah. The CD says Little Fury Things on the spine, so... Yeah, I only have the 12-inch. I've got it. I guess I have the 7-inch in the visitor's box set, too, though. Yeah. The best part about about the artwork for me is the amazing photos on the back. Totally. Yeah. Let's go clockwise. Okay. We've... In a spiral pattern toward the middle? Yeah, well, we'll start with the Continental continental club there okay jay's rocking a wicked striped shirt and playing that wicked fender that he's known for yeah then we've got jay and murph and the king (laughs) yeah and murph like what what kind of hat is that man i don't know what you call it's like an explorer's hat safari hat yeah yeah and then jay's playing like an arcade racing game yeah I'm sure he's going pedal to the metal on that. Yep, that's a classic photo of Lou underneath him there. Yeah, probably after another passive-aggressive discussion in the van. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's Lou with his ukulele. Yeah. Yep. He's probably starting to write some uh, Centrido tunes on that, I bet. Maybe. Then we've got Murph. And the Cookie Monster smoking a ciggy. Yep. Kind of an artier picture next to that. The bottle on an antenna, I would presume, perhaps, maybe on their tour van. I don't know. Yep. It might just, might be the back of a car, though. Yep. That type of antenna. It does say, here's where it gives the photo cred, though, to Jonathan Fetier. He took all these photos or just that one? It says photos, Jonathan Fetier. Hmm. So I would presume it's all. Maybe he was on tour with them for this stretch. I don't know. I should have asked Mora. Then we've got uh, Jay smoking a dart. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to say that so Canadian? Hacking a dart? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, if you're going to go Canadian, can you please do that one in the middle with Murph, please? Right on. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. Murph with his he's he's ditched the long hair. Yeah, I know. He went full shave for the for this uh session yeah. of all these snaps. Yeah. And then I and a photo pre name change there tonight, dinosaur. Yeah, well that dinosaur pre name change also shows up in that one with Jay with the drumsticks up his nose. Hey, it says Oh yeah. Dinosaur yeah. loud psychedelic rock, courtesy of SST Records. Who's in the napalm photo there? I don't know. Maybe it's uh maybe it's Jonathan Fetier. Maybe. I love how Murph Murph is just rocking some super puffy tongue high tops. Hey? Oh, like yeah. just Yeah, man. Those are probably Air Jordans or something. These dudes are rockers, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Any dead wax? Negative. That was a letdown. Hmm. No dead wax. Okay. Maybe on uh subsequent editions, like the colored ones, um, because they would have had to make new stamps and everything for the 10 inch but i don't have that okay ballot result yeah man ballot result what do you think man are we going with in a jar well like i said we've or you said we get another crack at this one later on you pick you're the dinosaur junior fanatic i i, I like them but you love them yeah in a jar for sure well, in a jar would have been my pick, but I thought you would have gone for Little Fury things because I thought you wanted to do that one for You're Living All Over Me. I think that was your pick. And I talked you into doing Raisins, I think, is how that went. Uh, I'm good. Either way, we'll do Little Fury things at Fossils. Okay. I was just, you know, I, I know we spieled about, you know, the Jay and Lou and, and Murph's uh, playing style and everything during the you're living all over me episode but in isolation with just three tracks the lose bass playing just pummels me on in a jar and it has to be the ballot result done deal man hey thanks mora for being on the show yeah that was uh that was a real treat thanks again yeah hey ryan what's next week brant are you feeling swa always well, me too, because next week it's SST 153, the SWA 12-inch EP, Arroyo. Yeah, and we've got another really interesting guest, Ryan. Modi Frank's going to be on the show. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.